0: Well, welcome back to our New Testament survey. Uh, we are going through the New Testament, one book each week, uh, seeing what we can learn uh, from each book and how, uh, what themes the book contains, uh, why it was written, and how it can continue to benefit the church uh, even today, two thousand years later. So this evening we find ourselves in the book of Colossians. This is Paul's letter to the church in Colossae. So once again, this is uh, authored by the Apostle Paul, uh, probably in the early 60s AD, while he was under arrest in Rome. So this is another one of his prison epistles, uh, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon as well. There are some stylistic differences between Colossians and Ephesians, but uh, probably that is just uh, the difference in the issues that are being dealt with, and possibly in a secretary that Paul may have used uh, as he dictated the letter. So, uh, what is the pur- what You know, why was Colossians written? That's one of the questions that we ask, and we saw in Philippians that um, it was kind of a letter of thanksgiving that Paul was uh, sharing that was a general epistle, didn't have a specific occasion that caused the letter to be written. The book of Colossians, however, does. Paul had received a visit uh, from uh, a fellow gospel worker named Epaphras who had started this church in Colossae. Uh, He's come to Rome. Uh, He's brought Paul news of the church there and the situation that is going on. Paul has never visited this church. He has not been to Colossae. He has not met these people face to face. So he's writing them a letter as an apostle, but not as one who has actually been there with them in person. He's only heard of the church through Epaphras, uh, who first taught them the gospel. But the news has come to him that uh, there's some false teaching that has arisen there, some sort of heresy. And of course, we have to try and piece it together from Paul's response to the situation, Uh, and we'll see that it's kind of similar to some things that were happening in Galatia and Ephesians, but there's kind of an added twist here in Colossae. So uh, we still have some of the teaching that would tell the Gentiles that they needed to embrace certain ritualistic aspects of Judaism in order to be Christians, Uh, but combined with that in Colossae, we have uh, what is commonly called syncretism, where we've synchronized a couple of different things. And here we seem to have some Greek philosophy that's been synchronized in and mixed with uh, these Jewish rituals and mixed with uh, some Christianity. So uh, it's kind of this hodgepodge thing of philosophy and ritual and certain aspects of Christianity. And so Paul is writing to sort that out uh, and to Primarily, we'll see uh, that Colossians is very concerned with the preeminence and supremacy of Christ, uh, that Christ is greater than human reason, greater than philosophy, that he is the greater than rituals, religious rituals. He is the end at which those rituals pointed. Uh, that Christ is above all and should be the center of all. So that's, that's the purpose of the book. Uh, that is the main theme of the book, is the supremacy or preeminence of Christ. A simple outline for the book would simply be that uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 are Paul's opening and his prayer of thanksgiving for the church there, which is common. Uh, but even in that prayer of thanksgiving, we'll see some of these themes Uh, Start to come up concerning the preeminence of Christ. But then the latter half of chapter 1 is primarily concerned with the theology of the preeminence of Christ over all of creation. Chapter 2 then is the preeminence of Christ over philosophy and over religious rituals. Chapter 3 through chapter 4, verse 6 is the preeminence of Christ in the life of the believer, uh, both in the church. And in the home, similar to uh, how he had addressed the church in Ephesus. And then uh, the last part of chapter 4, verse 7 through 18, is the closing of his letter uh, and some greetings from different people and stuff that we'll see as we get there. So that's a rough outline of the book. So as we look at chapter 1, we can see right here at the beginning that, uh, again, this is a, a letter written by Paul with Timothy. He says right in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Paul introduces himself as an apostle, an apostle whose authority is from God. He he is an apostle by the will of God, not by the will of man, not self-proclaimed, but he is appointed by God to this position. So the authority that he has to address the church in this letter is authority that comes from God. And Timothy is there with him. It is addressed in verse 2 to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, it's sort of his standard greeting, but uh, you notice that it's to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ. Uh, Again, I just point out it's interesting when Paul writes these letters to the churches to correct them because they're in error. But he addresses them at the beginning of the letter as saints, as faithful brethren, as uh, beloved in Christ. Uh, So uh, even though he is correcting them for errors, uh, he still takes this tone of recognizing them as fellow believers. Uh, Then in verse 3, he begins his prayer of thanksgiving for them. and He says, we give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints, uh, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. So he's heard of the church from Epaphras. Uh, We see that down in verse 7. And so he is thankful for them. He is thankful for what he has heard. Uh, He points out that he is thankful for their faith in Christ and for their love for the church, for the household of faith, for all other believers. Those are the two things that he is primarily thankful for. Those things stem from the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. So the gospel message has given them hope of an inheritance in heaven. And because of that, uh, they have faith in Christ and they love other believers. And so Paul expresses his thankfulness for that. Uh, Then in verse 6, he begins to bring uh, in this theme of the preeminence of Christ by showing that the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus, is bigger uh, than what they have experienced. They have experienced it themselves in Colossae. But that word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, as it has also in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit, as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. So he's kind of trying to take their eyes off of themselves and lift it up so that they can see the work of the gospel throughout the world, that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is bigger uh, than what they have experienced in their own lives, that it's, it's going throughout all of the world. Uh, He's kind of echoing here uh, Jesus' great commission in Matthew 28, uh, telling the church that all authority has been given to Christ, and so therefore we are to go to all nations. Uh, And so Paul is telling them, you're part of that. Uh, You're part of that there in Colossae, but you need to keep in mind that this thing is bigger than you are. And that would be a good lesson for us to remember. It's easy to get caught up uh, in what we have going on within these four walls here in Attica, Uh, But sometimes we need to kind of lift our gaze to the horizon and see that God is working all around the world. That's why it's always good to hear reports from missionaries or churches in other parts of the world uh, to see what God is doing elsewhere that we can be encouraged by and see that we're part of a larger story. Uh, So Epaphras has preached the gospel to them so they are part of what Christ is doing in the world. Uh, And then in in verse 9... Uh, Paul says, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask. So now he's going to tell tell them what it is that he's asking God to do on their behalf. To ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So verse 9, he is Echoing two Old Testament texts, uh, one is Isaiah chapter eleven, verse two, uh, which is speaking of the the branch that will come from the root of Jesse, obviously speaking about Christ uh, and saying that Christ will be filled the, the servant of Isaiah uh, will be filled with the knowledge of god 's will with a spirit of wisdom and understanding but there 's another Old Testament text that 's being echoed there too, and that is. Exodus chapter 31, and it's worth reading, Exodus chapter 31 verse 3, uh, here God is giving Moses instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. The people of Israel have come out of Egypt, Uh, they've been constituted as a nation, as God's chosen people, uh, and God is present with them. And so they're going to construct a tabernacle where they can see uh, God's presence with them visibly. And, and so he tells Moses that, uh, he says in verse 2, See, I have called by name Be- Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all manner of workmanship. Uh, And so this guy is going to oversee the construction of the tabernacle. Uh, He's been gifted by God extraordinarily uh, to do all this uh, creative work to build the tabernacle. But he's going to be filled with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and in knowledge, which is what Paul prays for the saints in Colossae. They'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Now, interestingly, later in the letter, Paul's going to make the point that they are the elect of God. They're his chosen people, just like the Israelites were in the Old Testament. So, God's presence no longer dwells in a tabernacle, in a tent made with hands, but it dwells in the church. God's presence on the earth dwells in his church, and so Paul is praying that the saints there would be filled with this spirit of wisdom and understanding that was used in the Old Testament to construct the tabernacle. So Paul's point seems to be that the church, that the saints are being built up into Uh, represents the same thing the tabernacle did in the Old Testament, the presence of God on earth. Uh, He says in verse 10 then that I want you to walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him and being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So walking worthy of the Lord is talking about uh, how we live our lives, pleasing God, which of course cannot be done without faith, uh, and bearing fruit. Uh, increasing in knowledge. And so this would lead to the growth of the church. Uh, If it's bearing fruit, if the saints are living, worthy of the gospel, worthy of the Lord, pleasing to God, uh, bearing fruit, then the church would be growing, which was the point of his prayer there in verse 9, to build the church just as the tabernacle had been built in the Old Testament. Uh, In verse 12, he then uh, says that he's giving thanks to the Father. He wants them to give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers in the inheritance of the saints in the light. Uh, so again, that Old Testament, uh, the children of Israel brought out of Egypt had an inheritance in the promised land. Uh, the saints in the New Testament in the church have an inheritance uh, in the coming kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, an inheritance that is with the saints in light. And then in verse 13, he says that God has delivered us from the power of darkness and transferred us or conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So uh, just as Israel had been taken out of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage in Egypt, brought to their inheritance in the promised land, so the saints have been taken out of bondage uh, in darkness, of unbelief and have been granted an inheritance with the saints in light. Uh, So this is Paul's prayer for them, uh, that they would be filled with this, that they would understand these things, be delivered from spiritual darkness, uh, and know that they have been redeemed and forgiven uh, and are members of this new kingdom. Beginning then in verse 15 through the end of the chapter is uh, this section that addresses the preeminence of Christ over all things, particularly over all things that have been created. Uh, Commentators agree that this uh, almost takes the form of a hymn, uh, a hymn to Christ and the glory of Christ. He says in verse 15 that he is the image of the invisible God. So uh, just as Adam was made in the image of God. Uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God. He's the perfect image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He does not mean uh, that Christ uh, had a moment in time when he began to be and had not been before that. Uh, this is not that. Uh, I know the Mormons and some other uh, cults would use this verse that, that way, but what Paul is primarily talking about here is relational priority or status as the firstborn. Uh, just as in Exodus 4 verse 22, the nation of Israel is called the Lord's firstborn. Uh, here Christ is the firstborn in that he is preeminent over uh, the rest of the creation. He goes on then to say that all things were created by him. So uh, just like in the beginning of John's gospel, if all things were created by Christ, then Christ is not a created thing uh, because all things were created by him. They were created by him both in heaven, that are in heaven, and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. Uh, So Christ is not created since he created all things, and he is preeminent over all things, visible and invisible. Uh, Whether they are uh, powers, principalities, dominions, thrones on earth, in the spiritual kingdom, Christ is preeminent over all things. Uh, All things are also dependent on him. Uh, They depend on him for their continued existence, he says in verse 17. And then we come to verse 18, uh, which is, I will go ahead and admit, my favorite verse in all of Scripture. Uh, Verse 18, he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Uh, A wonderful verse that I've just kind of taken as... uh, a theme to constantly remind myself of, that in all things he may have the preeminence. He's the head of the church, which is his body. Uh, He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the firstborn over all creation, ruling and reigning preeminently over everything. In verse 19, he tells us that Christ embodies uh, the fullness of God, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell. So just as the tabernacle contained the presence of God to the people, Christ contained the presence of God uh, to his people, and now his people are united to him. Uh, in verse 20, he says that by him to reconcile all things to himself, whether by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So it is by him faith in Christ's sacrificial uh, atoning death, that we are united to Him and brought to peace uh, with God. All things are made by Him, dependent upon Him for their continued existence, and dependent upon His atoning work in order to be reconciled to God. He is preeminent over all things. Uh, Verses 21 and 22, then, are a great summary statement of the heart of the gospel message. Paul addresses the Gentile believers in Colossae and says, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So this is what Christ has done in his flesh He has died uh, through death uh, in order to redeem us, to reconcile us to God, and to present us holy and blameless and above reproach in God's sight. So this is what Christ does. He is preeminent over all things, and He is the only means of reconciliation with God. Paul then says, Uh, Here in this last section of chapter 1, a verse that can be a little confusing, he says, "Now I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul is not saying that Christ's atoning sacrificial death didn't accomplish what it was meant to accomplish, and that Paul had to finish that work. That's not what he's saying. He is only saying that it's incomplete in the sense that all of the elect have not yet been saved. And so Paul, as a minister of the gospel, uh, is t- helping complete that work by sharing the gospel, taking it to uh, different towns, writing letters such as this one to Colossae. Uh, often through suffering, he is ministering the gospel uh, so that all of the elect might be saved. And so he has been made a, minister, uh, a by the will of God, uh, for this cause. Uh, In verse 26, he mentions again the mystery which we've discussed in previous letters, uh, such as Ephesians, uh, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints, Uh, to them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it's that union with Christ, Christ dwelling in us, that's the mystery of the gospel, that the Gentiles were brought into uh, Christ and therefore into the elect of God. Uh, That Christ in you, both Gentile and Jew, is how you are reconciled to God. Uh, And and then he tells us what the goal of his ministry is. Uh, He says, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So that's, that's his goal, is to help mature other believers, other disciples, uh, that they might reach uh, maturity in Christ. To this end, he says, I also labor, striving according to his working, which he works in me mightily. So it's Christ working in Paul to finish the mission of taking the gospel uh, to the nations. And he continues to work through the church as well, which was Paul's point uh, by praying back in verse 9 that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will, with wisdom, and with spiritual understanding that they might uh, participate in that temple building or that tabernacle building, which is the church. When we get to chapter 2, Paul now begins to deal with the false teaching that is present in Colossae. Uh, And primarily the first half of chapter 2, he is dealing with uh, this Greek philosophy that seems to have found its way into the church. Uh, He begins in verses 1 through 3 saying, For I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you and for those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so his point is uh, that part of his prayer for them is that they would have an assurance of their salvation, an assurance of having uh, attained salvation through Christ, uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's no need to look elsewhere uh, for wisdom. Greek Philosophy cannot provide wisdom to you that is not found in Christ. Uh, And so he encourages them in verses 6 and 7 to uh, stay rooted in Christ. Having received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. So uh, stay rooted in Christ. Now verse 4 kind of addresses uh, the occasion for why he has written this letter. He says, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you, With persuasive words. So the false teaching is often persuasive sounding, particularly this Greek philosophy uh, that is finding its way into the church. Uh, It sounds reasonable, it sounds wise, uh, it sounds thoughtful, it sounds well educated, uh, and it's persuasive, but it is deceiving them if it takes them away from Christ. The false teaching, uh, he says in verse 8, he, he tells them to beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So uh, the false teaching is elevating man's reason as the arbiter of truth. Uh, it's a philosophy of empty deceit, uh, traditions of men, the, the basic principles of the world. It's not rooted in Christ, it's rooted in man's reason, in man's philosophy apart from Christ, uh, trying to make man's reason ultimate rather than God's wisdom. You know, this was a problem in Colossae in the first century, and Paul's having to write this letter, and yet we still face this same thing today in our world, as people in our culture uh, think that human reason is the way that they will discover wisdom. Uh, and that they can reason uh, their way to the truth apart from Christ, and it just simply cannot be done. Um, it's rooted in the traditions of men and ideas uh, of men. Uh, the latter part there he says, according to the basic principles of this world. Uh, Commentators disagree over exactly what he means there, but uh, it seems to mean elements or principles of this world. Uh, that Greek word is translated as both elements and principles in other places, particularly in Hebrews where it talks about um, how the the people that are being written to in the book of Hebrews are baby Christians uh, who have been have been fed milk and are not ready for the solid meat yet, even though they should be, and so he says, I'm having to teach you the basic principles again. So that's the idea here, uh, is that it's rooted in the basic principles of the world rather than of the gospel and of Christ. And, and so this uh, philosophy that has become part of what they're believing uh, has put man's reason as ultimate rather than Christ as ultimate. But then he goes on to tell them in verses 9 and 10 that uh, Christ is the fullness of God. He is the head of all rule and authority. Uh, So for in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Why would you look for ultimate truth in your own understanding, in your own wisdom apart from Christ when Christ is the fullness of God uh, bodily and we're complete in him? He is the head of all principality and power, not human reason. Christ has freed us uh, from our dependence on our own fallen thinking, our own fallen reason. But this is not the sum total of what's going on in Colossae. The second half of the chapter, he then begins to deal with uh, some of the Jewish Uh, aspects and elements that have been combined with the Greek philosophy. He addresses the issue of circumcision, uh, beginning there in verse 11. Interestingly, uh, this is a passage that uh, some Presbyterians will turn to to try and prove infant baptism uh, and the connection between circumcision and baptism. It's also one of the first ones I would turn to to prove uh, that baptism is for believers, not for infants because in verse 12 he says, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God. So uh, we're raised with Christ through faith. uh, And that faith is our own, not the faith of our parents. So uh, that's just a little aside there on those verses. But Paul addresses the issue of circumcision, uh, the uncircumcision of our flesh or our heart being circumcised in Christ. And he says that, Uh, Christ has made us alive, in verse 13, together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So he's saying that that Christ, in his work on the cross, fulfilled the law. So all of those Jewish regulations uh, that condemned us, those things that required us to do certain things, uh, Christ has fulfilled them. They have been nailed to the cross, uh, and so we're no longer uh, bound by those things as previously we might have been. So he has triumphed. He has triumphed over those things. He's triumphed, he says in verse 15, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, that is, in the cross. So on the cross, in his death, Christ has triumphed. Uh, He has fulfilled the law. He has triumphed over uh, principalities and powers in spiritual places. Uh, He has become preeminent over the law, over uh, the Jewish rituals. And so, Paul says in verse 16, that we're not to let anyone judge us in these matters, food and drink, a festival, a new moon, or Sabbaths. Uh, He's talking about uh, the Jewish rituals, the the food dietary laws or the, the festivals and, and things that were kept in the Old Testament uh, were not to be judged by those or condemned by those or excluded from the community of faith on the basis of these Jewish laws uh, because it's not in, as Calvin said, it is not in the power of men to make us subject to the observance of rights which Christ has by his death abolished. He says in verse uh, 17 that these things were a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So they were the shadow, Christ is the substance. Those festivals in the Old Testament, uh, the dietary laws, all of those ceremonial aspects of the law under the Old Covenant were pointing towards Christ. He has fulfilled them and therefore abolished them as far as our keeping of them goes. So we are not to be condemned by these Jewish teachers who would say you must do these things in order to be a Christian. And then he says in verse 18, um, again, very similar to what he said in verse 8. In verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy. Here he says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels introduced, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. So very similar to what he said in verse 8, uh, the, the Greek philosophy, which is according to the principles of the world and not according to Christ. Here in verse 18, this uh, religious ritual that they might be uh, trying to hold people to will cheat you of your reward, uh, and it is not according to Christ. What does he mean by the worship of angels? Well, commentators disagree there on what he means, but uh, G.K. Beale suggests that it may be something akin to uh, what we see in Roman Catholicism uh, with praying to saints or praying to Mary in order to have them mediate for us, uh, between us and God, that perhaps they were... uh, He says that there's a false humility in worship of angels, that perhaps they were pretending to be, you know, it was a false humility, claiming that they're humble. Well, I just, I'm praying to these angels, having them intercede for me with God, uh, but this was not how God had uh, instructed us to worship Him. Uh, And so there seems to be like some Jewish mysticism along with the ritualistic aspects getting combined with the Greek philosophy and all bound up uh, with what they had heard from Epaphras of Christ. And so it's, it's this confused conglomerate of different beliefs. And Paul says that these things are not according to Christ. They're according to man's ideas, according to old covenant laws, and, and then all messed up and not uh, holding fast to the head, which is Christ. And so he's showing that Christ is preeminent uh, over not only Greek philosophy, but over Jewish rituals as well. Uh, So Christ is preeminent over reason and over ritual. He says in verses 20 through 23 that um, this sort of legalism uh, that insists on keeping these restrictions has an appearance of doing something, but it actually has no value as far as sanctification goes, as far as actually putting to death sin in us. He says it's of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So you may, these legalists may say, well, don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't do these things, and it looks like, wow, they're really living a holy life but they've just given in to different sins. They have a false humility, but they're actually proud. Uh, They have not actually put sin to death. They may have some strict self-discipline, but they've not actually grown in sanctification. It's an appearance of wisdom, uh, but it's false humility, he says more than once. Uh, So it's not actually uh, helping them lead godly lives. Chapter 3 begins with uh, the... The if-then statement that we often see in Paul's letters, having established all of this theology, he then says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So this is the turning point. If you are united to Christ by faith, if you have been raised with him, then you have already begun to experience uh, the heavenly life, the new life which is found in Christ, but it will be completed only at his return. Uh, not you, you won't find that higher life that you're looking for. You won't find that experience of God that they're looking for through ritual or reason, uh, but you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God, and when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him. In glory. So uh, some commentators think that perhaps the, through uh, the philosophy and the mysticism and the ritualistic aspects of Judaism that the church in Colossae was trying to experience uh, something more. They wanted something more. They wanted an experience of God that they weren't having simply through uh, the, the preaching of the gospel. But Paul says you have life in Christ And it is hidden with him. And when he returns, then you'll have uh, the final consummation of those things. And so they are looking for something that is not theirs yet. He says in verse 5, Therefore, because you've been raised with Christ, put to death your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Uh, So because of our union with Christ, uh, this is the basis for how we live as Christians. And so Christ is to be preeminent over how we live as believers. Again, in verse 5 and in verse 8, these lists of sins that Paul gives us are representative lists, they're not exhaustive lists. Uh, He's not saying, these are the only things you have to avoid. He's saying, you put to death the old man, uh, you walk, you live in the new man. Uh, false teaching uh, that they were entertaining uh, was deceiving them about what it meant to actually live a godly life. He says in verse 9, Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. So that false teaching was a lie. He said in verse 4, in verse 8, in verse 18, and in verse 23 uh, that there was false humility involved, there was deception involved, uh, the, the, these things were lying to them. It was deceiving them and we're not to do those things. We are to put off the old man and put on the new man. The old man, of course, being uh, the sin nature in the likeness of Adam and the new man being Christ. And so we are to find our identity in Christ. And so he summarizes this down in verses 10 and 11, having put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So that would be Christ who he had said earlier in chapter 1 created all things. We are to put on this new man that is created, made in the image of Christ where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. So Christ is above all. Uh, He is our identity as believers. And so Christ is preeminent over all of creation. He is preeminent over Greek philosophy. He is preeminent over Jewish rituals. He is preeminent over uh, our identity as believers. And so now Paul goes on to tell them uh, how we should live uh, as God's church in verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so also you also must do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So, Because we have union with Christ, because our identity is found in him, we are part of God's elect, part of God's chosen people, which again goes back to that passage in chapter 1 where he picked up that language from Exodus where the people of God, the chosen people of God, uh, were building the tabernacle. Here the chosen people of God are the church. The church is being built up in the image of Christ, and Christ is uh, the fullness of God dwelling with us. And so we are to live uh, as new creatures uh, in these ways with one another. Christ is to be preeminent over our relationship with one another. He says in verse 14 that, Above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. So love is the mark of the Christian community. Not philosophical wisdom of men, not uh, the rituals that we observe, but how we love one another. That is what marks us out as God's elect people. What is love? Well, I'll go back to that definition offered by vodi It is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that results in action on behalf of the beloved. Uh, and so that's what all of these things that he listed in verses 12 and 13 are. They're the outworking of love. Uh, tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. That's actively loving one another. And so he's telling us because we are new creatures in Christ and we are to put on the image of Christ rather than the image of uh, the fallen man and Adam, that this is how we are to live as his people with one another. And the results of this are peace and unity in the church. He says in verse 15, "...and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body, and be thankful." Now, that's interesting that he says we were called to peace as part of our calling as Christians. And we see this over and over again in Paul's letters, this idea of unity and peace in the church with one another. This is our calling as Christians. This is our identity, and this is how we are identified by the world as being Christ, is that we love one another and live at peace with one another. And he says we are to be thankful. Uh, and he repeats this, he's already said it multiple times uh, earlier in the letter, and and he says it here in verse 15, uh, to be thankful. He says in verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him, that is, through Christ. Uh, So uh, in everything that we do as believers and as a church united together, uh, we are to do that with love and with thankfulness. Then in verses 18 uh, through chapter 4, verse 1, he then addresses household relationships, uh, similar to how he did in the book of Ephesians, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. Uh, And in all of these things, Christ is to be preeminent, uh, just as he is to be preeminent in our relationship to one another in the church, he is to be preeminent in our relationships to one another in the home. Uh, In those verses, Verse Chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, uh, as he discusses wives, husbands, children, parents, slaves, and masters, uh, he talks about Christ, God, or the Lord seven times in those verses. Uh, so again, Christ is preeminent over all of those relationships. Then uh, beginning in verse 2, uh, he says, he encourages the church there then to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So again, uh, this idea of thanksgiving. Uh, he's, this is the fourth time in the letter that he has told them to be thankful. Uh, and so they are to be continue in prayer earnestly, uh, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. So this is part of how uh, they manage these relationships with one another and work out their love towards one another is to do so uh, with earnest and vigilant prayer that is full of thanksgiving. He asks for them to pray for him, uh, that he would have opportunities to speak the the mystery of Christ, which is the gospel. Uh, He said the mystery of Christ earlier, he said, was Christ in you, the hope of glory. Um, and and that he would make it clear as he ought to make it clear. So uh, that is a good thing that we could pray for each other, uh, for your elders as we teach, for missionaries, that they would have opportunities to speak the gospel and that when we do, we would make it clear. He then tells them, Uh, In verse 5, to walk in wisdom towards those who are outside, redeeming the time. Uh, So he's addressed all their relationships with each other in the church and in the home uh, and their relationship to him as they pray for him. And now he tells them towards those who are outside the church, uh, we are to walk with wisdom, uh, redeeming the time. Not the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom that comes from Greek philosophy, but the wisdom that is rooted and found in Christ. And then in verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. So as we interact with those who are outside the church, uh, we should do so with speech that is gracious and seasoned with salt. That is, that would make them hunger for more. That's what salt does, right? It, it makes things taste good. It makes the gospel sound good. It makes us want more um, that we may know how to answer each one that we speak with. So, he has addressed the preeminence of Christ over philosophy, the preeminence of Christ over creation, the preeminence of Christ over ritual, the preeminence of Christ in the church, in our relationships with one another, in the home, in our personal relationships, and now also in our relationships with those outside the church. The end of the letter then from verse 7 through the end uh, is personal greetings from different people. Uh, Tychicus is the one who is carrying the letter uh, that he sent to them, uh, along with Onesimus, uh, who we will find out more about when we look at the book of Philemon. Uh, but he says that he has sent Tychicus with this letter. He says, "...a, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant and Lord will tell you all the news about me." I am sending him to you for this very purpose, that he may know your circumstances and comfort your hearts. Uh, So he's sending him with this letter, which is to instruct them, but also with this um, assistant of Paul's who is to comfort their hearts as they take in uh, this letter that Paul has written them. Uh, And with Onesimus who they know, and then he has various greetings from various people. It's interesting in verse 10, uh, we don't know who Aristarchus is, a uh, fellow prisoner, but then he mentions Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, uh, who had accompanied Paul and Barnabas on missionary journeys and will write the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and then he mentions uh, Luke as well, um, forget, in verse 14, Luke, the beloved physician. Uh, so he mentions some various people, but it's interesting that he mentions Mark and Luke because Luke writes the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, or Mark writes the gospel of Mark, and Paul writes these 13 letters. Uh, the majority of the New Testament is written by these three men. Uh, you know, John and Matthew are really the two other major contributors, and then you've got Jude. But, um, interesting that all three of these men were in the same place at the same time who wrote so much of the New Testament. Uh, And then interestingly in verse 16 he tells them again as we've discussed that these letters are epistles that were meant to be read more widely than just uh, to the immediate audience. He says now when this epistle is read among you see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Uh, So obviously these letters were meant to be read and circulated uh, more widely. And then he closes um, asking them to remember his chains and saying, grace be with you, amen. So this letter is uh, a wonderful letter that is one of my favorites because uh, of its how it exalts Christ and glorifies Christ as preeminent over all things. He is preeminent over the world, over man-made reason and philosophy, over religious ritual, over our sin nature. He's preeminent over our uh, self-interest and our relationship with others in the church and in the home. Uh, He is preeminent over all things. And so again, chapter 1, verse 18, I take to be uh, the key passage from the book. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And so my prayer would be that that is uh, our goal for this new year, that in all things uh, Christ might have the preeminence both in the church and in our lives individually. Let's pray.